Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to episode 106 of Greater Than Code. Uh, I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my friend and fellow panelist, John K. Sowers. Thank you, Jamie. And I'm here to introduce our guest, Lori Barth. Lori is a software engineer who started as a mathematician. Depending on the day, she can be found using any number of technologies to solve from different languages to frameworks to other support tools. She currently works as a developer and consultant with 10 Mile Square Technologies in the DC metro area. In 2017, a local first-year conference was soliciting speakers to talk about legacy system replacement. As a female engineer, Lori wanted to give more diverse speakers on the stage and decided to submit a talk based on the large and varied legacy systems that she had worked with over the years. From there, she was bit by the speaking bug. Now, Lori travels around, speaking about a variety of technical challenges she has faced in her career. In her free time, she involves herself in local technology groups, including facilitating the Girls Who Code Club. Then she sits back with a cupcake and plays board games with her close friends. Sounds great. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thanks. So happy to be here. So, you know what our first question is going to be, because it's always our first question. (laughs) And that is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I was talking to multiple people about it and something popped into my head, which is the fact that one of my, one of the partners at my company has actually mentioned before what he thinks my superpower is kind of unprovoked, which is that I have no problem being a time suck, which sounds really terrible, but I think it's actually kind of a positive thing for a variety of reasons. But basically it means I'm not afraid to take up senior engineers time to ask questions and I'm not afraid to voice my opinion when I think it's relevant and people should listen to it. So I have no problem being a time suck. And I think the reason I acquired that is my personality type is generally really results oriented. And I like being efficient. And I found pretty early on that the fastest way for me to solve the problems I was being asked to solve was to go up to the desk of my coworker, ask them a question, get the answer, go back. And that gave me the kind of building blocks I needed for the larger problem I was trying to solve. And that was by far the most efficient way to do it. Doesn't mean I don't Google, doesn't mean sometimes people don't know the answer. But being willing to ask those questions or have those opinions was oftentimes more beneficial than it was a negative. And once that happens to you a few times, you kind of continue on that path forever. So unafraid of being a time suck is probably my superpower. How much do you recommend other people acquire the superpower? Just like start being a time suck and see how great it is. I agree. It sounds, it sounds mean. To, like I said time suck because you said it, but it sounds yeah. mean. It sounds mean. Um, <laughs> time suck, resource suck, willing to recognize that your needs are worth your coworkers taking time out of their day to support. I think that's really what it comes down to. The idea that you progressing, you solving problems, you getting more involved, answering questions, all of that only comes from you getting more knowledge and having more experiences. And the best way to do that is to work and benefit from the people around you. And so it's good for them and it's good for you. And I think recognizing that it's mutually beneficial is really important. I think in this industry, a lot of the time, we have this kind of fear that because we're technologists, and a lot of us are self taught, and we can, you know, find everything we need to find on the internet, that we should just do that. But we forget that that's a time suck that in and of itself is taking away resources from your company and your project, for you to go through the top 10 answers, and hopefully find one that meets your needs or solves your problem. When if you go ask someone who you work with, who has all of the context of the problem that you're solving, 
it's probably a much more efficient use of not just your time, but the team's time um, and the company's time as an extension of that. And I think recognizing those pros and cons and kind of the give and take and all of that is important and beneficial. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Do you think that's also like an imposter syndrome thing? Because when you were talking about like wait, like using time looking through these um, like answers on Google, I think the thing that popped into my mind was like not necessarily like, oh, if I ask someone, I'll be taking them time. But like, oh, if I ask someone, then they'll know that I didn't know. I think that's definitely an aspect of it. But I think the problem's bigger than that, because I think that there are people who are okay with asking the question, but feel like they should be able to solve the problem themselves. And I think recognizing that it's not that you can't, it's that it's not the most efficient use of everybody's time to have you solve it in that manner. But I do think imposter syndrome in this case is absolutely prevalent. I actually said I wasn't going to say this, but I think it's relevant. It always ends up being relevant. My undergraduate degree is in mathematics. I was one of very few women in that program, as you can guess. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that I went to an all-female high school. And I loved math going into high school. And no one ever told me that math was for boys. I mean, I knew it was for boys, but all the people in my class were women. And so it was never weird. And so when I got to college, I was enough set on that path that it didn't affect me. And so the idea that I didn't know something was just inherent. I'm a student. I don't know things. You know, math is hard. Instead of, I don't want the boys to know that the girl doesn't know the answer. Which on the flip side, when I went to some of my computer science courses, that was my minor in college. I definitely had that fear that everyone was going to think I was the girl who didn't know something because I didn't have the base knowledge in that area. And it's real and it's prevalent, but I think it extends far beyond that. And and it becomes a much wider problem even after you get over the imposter syndrome of it all. Yeah, it's definitely something I've noticed junior developers struggling with that sort of feeling like, oh, you know, I, I can do this. I can get through the thing myself. I don't want to bother so-and-so senior person, they're so busy, they're doing more important work than I am, I couldn't possibly. And and when I've been in coaching or mentoring relationships with them, I, I have to say, literally, it is their job to make you better at this. And the way they do that is by you asking them questions. Like, even if the company isn't structured around specifically saying that those senior people need to be mentoring you and helping you out technically, like, even beyond that, like it's what the team needs. Like you were saying, the team needs for you to go ask them that question so that you get the answer in 20 minutes instead of in an hour and a half. Absolutely. And I won't deny as someone who's been that kind of mid to senior level resource that it's really hard to context switch when someone comes up and asks you a question. And so I would caution people who are going to take my advice because I do want people to take my advice. If your immediate reaction from someone you're asking is a little bit of a sigh and a turn and an okay, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the fact that we are all constantly solving Rubik's cubes in our own head. And moving yourself away from that and context switching can be super hard in our industry, give them about five seconds to recalibrate, and then they'll be good to help and figure out what you need and answer your question. So don't get discouraged by that. And I would caution people who answer those questions to recognize how hard that 
first gut punch reaction is to someone who's getting up the courage to ask that question and to really, really try and recognize that they're going to read into it as a lot more than what it is, which is just, okay, like kind of context switch and get my brain around this change. Both sides can stand to learn something from it, especially because even if you are a mid senior level person, there's someone more senior than you that you're asking questions of. There's a domain expert in another area that you're asking questions of. It affects all of us, regardless of whether you do it five times a day or once a week. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So I know there were a couple of topics that you had thought about bringing up here. And I think one of them was around the specific skills that we look for when we hire technical people and how those skills may not be the skills that are best to help them succeed at whatever they're doing. I kind of ended up in a rant about interviewing, which <laughs> was not the intention. I would I love to talk about this because I'm actually like fairly newly a hiring manager. And so this is like something that's been on my mind a lot lately too. We've been interviewing a lot. I would love to talk about it. In fact, there was a thread on Twitter just the other night that kind of blew up specifically about this topic. And there were a lot of answers I saw that were everything wrote in that message and more and kind of everything I think we all know inherently, but becomes really hard in practice. In general, I've been doing that a lot lately. And I find that even in my head, when I know exactly what I want us to do, and how I want us to do it, it's a lot harder in practice. It's a lot more time consuming in practice. And when you don't have designated hours to give up to recruiting beyond a certain point, and you're trying to juggle, you know, your engineering and management and projects and clients, customers, whatever, it becomes that much harder to recognize that your general view on these issues are affected by the person to person interviews that you're currently conducting, and kind of the meta problem versus the micro problem, the short term versus long term gains are really hard. I mean, that highlights one of the things that that's always bit me a little bit when we're doing hiring is that hiring and interviewing is always an add on to the rest of what you're doing. It's never let's carve out, you know, half your sprint just to deal with this stuff. It's okay, well, now go interview all these people or read all these resumes and, and, and get everything else done. I think some of that is based in the fact that we hire when we need bodies. So the people who are currently on the team are already overloaded. And we're at a point where it's a runaway train, so to speak, the more time you take to hire, the more time it takes to get a new body in, but then you still have to ramp them up. And so you're losing all of this velocity, which is not a term I really love, but you're losing a lot of your engineering time, energy resources. And what I think kind of gets to the root of that is obviously we're trying to, you know, make money for a company, a company needs money to survive. But if we could get more proactive about resources, if we could get better at understanding when we're going to need more engineering power, then we could get ahead of the problem and do something like carve out time in a sprint to designate two or three people who can really get deep into the interview process. Because in the end, we're only hurting ourselves because we want to hire people efficiently, but we also want the people that we hire to be efficient hires in the sense that this is the right fit for us and for them. They're going to be here for a long time. The investment we put into them is worth it. And I think we have a lot of fear about that already. The thing that I saw in this 
this Twitter thread that was happening a couple weeks ago, or even this week was people kept pointing out, and I wholeheartedly agree with this, the technical hiring process is built to keep out false positives. And in reality, it creates a huge number of false negatives, which makes it deeply inefficient for everyone. Can you go into that more? Like, what do you mean by creating false negatives? Yeah, so we are far more likely to turn down applicants who would be a really good fit for our company in service of not wasting time and money on a hire who's going to burn out or be a failure within 30 to 60 days. So we are more likely to take a bunch of people out of our process who, if we got them in the door and sat them down at a computer and integrated them them into our team would be hugely beneficial to us and not bring them on for the fear that they're going to fail, that they're not going to be the right fit. And I think that happens in higher numbers than it does the original fear we're trying to get over, which is that we're going to have these kind of bad fits come into our company, which again is a resource suck, but so is recruiting. And so is going through 20 candidates when 10 of them are a good fit and deciding that only two of them are a good fit because we're so, so afraid that these other eight aren't quite high enough stratospheric good fits that we're willing to invest the resources in them, which is probably a really convoluted way of saying it. So I should probably figure out a better way to say that. No, that made sense. Yeah, I think it's also a diversity issue because the people that show up as sort of super obviously good hires are the white males who got a CS degree and all the other people just get preemptively dropped out of the barrel because they don't look super perfect on paper. I think that happens even when you get them in the door. I mean, the way we ask questions, I think is super relevant. We were having a really extensive conversation in my company the other day, actually, where we wanted to make sure that they knew the type of technologies that they would be working on. It was a position where there really was some requirement about the tech stack you were familiar with. But the problem that we had is that when you ask questions about that specific technology, you're really just asking, when you've worked with this technology, do you happen to work with this one keyword? And can you give me the textbook definition of what it means? And you're not asking, here's a question that's somewhat nebulous and open-ended, but I'm giving you the opportunity to show me what you know about this technology that I need you to have worked with. And figuring out how to ask those questions is really hard, but it's important. And it comes down to not asking questions about what is a directive and angular, but asking a question like, if I wanted a deeply reusable component that's going to show up on multiple pages that has some really funky UI display stuff going on with it, what are certain patterns I could use? Or how would you solve that problem? But all of that comes down to yet another problem, which is the person who's giving that initial screen before you've brought them in and used those resources is probably someone who doesn't have the technical ability to understand a more open-ended, vague question. And are you willing to use the resources to do those initial phone screens? Or are you trying to automate that process away a little bit, in which case you end up with a right answer that they're checking against kind of a dictionary definition, so to speak? Yeah, I think those sort of uh, syntax and keyword-based evaluations are highly problematic. I, I remember back in the day, I, I was the, I went in for a job, and they sat me down with a written test about Java syntax. 
and um had I been more uh, self-aware at the time, I could I would have just walked out. But of course, I bombed the test because it was just minutiae. And did you happen to remember what order these things go in or, and these other things? And, you know, so I never went any farther with that job because it was just such a silly way of evaluating my developing skill. Yeah. One of the things I think we found time and time again, and we've all discussed, is you end up with people who look like you or who look like whoever does the hiring. And I actually had this experience just a couple weeks ago because I made it through a hiring process of people who don't really look like me. And then once I got to the other side, when I'm hiring people, I see people who look like me and say, well, I'm successful here. So of course they would be successful here. And I think it's important to distill down what makes you a successful employee if you're involved in the hiring process but also what makes everyone around you a successful employee. I think for a long time, we had this sense that being able to write code from scratch is what makes you successful because for a long time, that's what you had to do. The code didn't exist. Libraries, services, all of these other external resources weren't the main part of development. And these days, that's such a big component that we haven't made the shift. So instead of can you sit at a blank screen or a whiteboard or any number of other things and write an algorithm? What we really need to know is how quickly can you understand this large chunk of code that already exists, figure out what it does, and change this one thing that I need you to change? Or how quickly can you take these services and libraries that already exist and make them work in code that we already have? And so our false positives that we talked about before, everyone's afraid of the person who can't put the algorithm on the whiteboard. But that's not really indicative of the types of skills we see a need for right now. That's a great point. But how do you test for can you understand our code and add something to it? I love to see in-person interviews that involve an existing piece of code instead of a blank screen. And it doesn't have to be complicated, frankly. It could be a to-do app that is already a working front end or back end and say, this is a ticket. This is a bug. Can you help us walk through how you might solve this? And it has to be simple. It can't be a giant code base. But I think it gives you a really clear indicative picture of the logic they use, the steps that they walk through, the type of thinking and problem solving that a candidate comes with instead of the rote memorization or computer science algorithm questions we often see. Yeah. One of the things I've been working on with my team is, and this this is based on ideas I picked up from uh, Jennifer Tu and Pete Holliday, who both had um, workshops and talks at RailsConf uh, in the spring this year. I believe Pete's talk was called the Code-Free Code Interview. One of the the things that they talked about there was asking questions about values. So what you do is rather than making the candidate guess at what answer you're looking for, you say, our value is X. Tell me about a time where you were able to demonstrate that value. And so that question allows them to demonstrate their understanding of it and how they would do that. And that, and, and that can include things like, you know, I would like you to submit a, like a review of this pull request, like, Here's some code to read through. You know, what comments would you leave? What questions would you have? Uh, and that way you can test things like, 
how compassionately do they communicate? How well do they express their technical reservations? So you're, you're doing two things. First, you're actually having them look at code. But secondly, you're also saying, this is the value we'd like you to express while you're doing it. So that can be really handy. So we've been working with my team on actually figuring out what our values are and what things we're going to, we would be hiring for and how do we ask the questions of people coming in so that we can get them to demonstrate those values. I think one of the meta problems that happens is if you're hiring a mid to senior level person, you're assuming that they can talk a good game, so to speak. And so you're afraid of the fact that they can't sit down at an editor and actually write code. And so you test for that. But I think that's the symptom of the problem that we seem to all be trying to hire mid to senior level engineers, which has many, many, you know, reasons for that problem. But I think kind of the simplest one is if you can't hire juniors or aren't willing to hire juniors, you either either have a very specific business case that requires that, or in the past when you have done so, you have lost them or they have not progressed, which are both problems of the company itself. If you're hiring juniors and you don't feel like they're progressing fast enough, you can do something about that. And in fact, you should. And that should tell you something about the way your engineering department is run or your company if you're all engineers. But if you're losing them, that also tells you something. And if we didn't feel the need to always be hiring mid to senior engineers, I feel like we could interview a lot more on not just potential, but the way people think instead of being so concerned that they won't be able to pick up the syntax of our particular tech stack immediately and run with it because we don't have the resources or time to waste to give them even a little bit of time to do that. To be fair, we do the same thing with hiring senior engineers. If they're not in the explicit tech stack we want, we won't hire them, even though everyone says all the time coding is about learning and you know everything changes so fast. And if you work in JavaScript, it won't be here in five to 10 years. The idea that we keep hiring specialists in certain areas kind of across the board instead of taking generalists who have the ability to learn whatever syntax is put in front of them also says something about the way we run our companies and our teams instead of just about our hiring process. I think when you whittle down to what your hiring process needs are, you're going to find many more kind of systemic issues that you should be looking at. Right. If your hiring process demands senior people because there's no possible way that any of the other senior people could mentor juniors, then that's a problem with your company. I'm wondering how a lot of this advice might be different for different sized companies um, as well, because like a few things that you've mentioned make me feel like when you're giving this advice, you're picturing like, I guess, slightly larger companies than I was maybe picturing when we first started talking. You mentioned at one time, like, put two or three people on this for like a sprint. And I'm like, that's my entire engineering team. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I'm wondering, particularly for smaller teams, like, I think I see this anxiety about fit more in smaller teams. And I wonder if that is just like a shared anxiety. I mean, it makes sense to me. But I wonder if that's a shared anxiety or if it is like actually a riskier thing for teams of that size, in your opinion? So it's funny, I actually work for a small company. And the company before this was a small company. And when I say small, I mean, like under 30 people in both cases. 
And I think the reason I said two to three people is my instinct. I'm not sure if it's a positive or negative instinct is that some of the giant conglomerates are the ones who are going to need to spearhead change in this area for it to kind of affect everybody else. Because I think as long as we have people studying for kind of the stereotypical coding interviews, we're going to see this problem and it's going to affect people who want to be engineers and it's going to keep them out of the talent pool in general, especially companies that are able to hire a large amount of junior people straight out of school or straight out of boot camps. Like you want them to not get the door slammed in their face. But I think for smaller companies, it is a bigger fear because the resources it takes to ramp someone up are felt so much more personally by teams and by companies as a whole. But I also think that small companies have the ability to really vet people in a way that other companies don't. They have the ability to have a large number of their teams meet the people who are coming on. They get to know the candidate's personality and the way that they talk and communicate and think. And they can figure out pretty quickly, at least in my experience, whether or not this is someone they want to work with and someone they think can grow within their own company. And they don't necessarily need to use the kind of typical engineering crutch in the same way that other places do. But I do agree that they are likely to be more invested in the problem of getting the wrong fit candidate. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to follow the tactics of the larger companies. I think, in fact, they're likely to be more successful if they chart their own course in this particular way, because their needs are different, their fears are different, their risks are different. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. And I totally agree about having like the majority of your team, like I have the majority of my team meet pretty much all of my candidates, which is really like, it's a give and take because it's really nice to be able to do and I feel really confident in our hires because of it. But then also like, I'm taking away everyone's quote velocity when I'm <laughs> interviewing people. And so I'm, I, I, I'm asking a lot of my team as a whole when we're doing interviews, but then I think that we all feel, not just I feel confident, but like we all feel really confident about bringing someone new on, which is like a really good feeling when you're bringing someone on and like everyone feels really pumped about it rather than like I've been at other places where people are like feel nervous about it on like someone's first day. Yeah. And, and with a small team, like if uh, like a, a, a personality mismatch is going to be really devastating you know, because you're going to be all working so closely together. So I can see why you want everyone to be really happy about it. Absolutely. And I think for me, that's one of the things I feel gets lost in this kind of stereotypical interview process is it becomes about the technology first and the person second. And so you go through this whole process and you finally got these people who can kind of meet your technology needs. And then you decide if they're a fit for your company and your team. And that seems so backwards to me because it seems like if you could figure out really early on in the process, do we think this person would fit well with us? And not in the kind of diversity stereotypical way, right? Like not, do they look like us? Do they act like us? It's they're excited about the work that we do. Do we think that they could grow with the type of work we expect them to do? And then from there say, okay, based on our initial requirements and the amount of time we think we have to get them to be full-fledged members of this team, what are our needs? 
And I, I think we don't do that often enough. We kind of go in the opposite direction and say, okay, if we were to add to our team, we kind of need this level of engineering prowess immediately. And the reality is, even if you hire your absolute best candidate who meets everything, you're looking at a month, two months, sometimes six months for them to really ramp up and know what they're working on, which is one of those other things that I wish we could test for the idea that there are people who learn through context clues and pattern matching incredibly quickly. And we need them in software engineering, we need them badly. And we don't often get them because they're not the same people who are good at rote memorization. Because they never have to memorize anything because they can always figure it out on the fly. Fun fact. <laughs> not saying I'm one of these people ever. Nope, not that person. Nope. People get very nervous in interviews about like, I'll be like, you can use Google and they'll be like, oh, and I'll be like, you can really use Google though. Like it's really, it's not me just telling you it's okay. Like it really is okay. <laughs> I use Google when I'm working. Like The thing I find fascinating is you tell candidates they can use Google and they're more likely to go to the docs to get a definition for a specific function call, for example, to figure out the syntax for it than they are to do what they would do normally, which is find someone's code to solve the exact problem and tweak it because they think it's cheating. And I think a lot of hiring managers think it's cheating. And in my mind, how is it cheating if that's the way you actually solve the problem if you're given it during the workday? Yeah. The way I solve problems is I get a chunk of code that's working, double check that it's working in my system, and then slightly shift it piece by piece by piece by piece until it does what I want it to do. And then if I have to clean it up or make other changes or change, you know, variable names, all that jazz, I do that. But the worst part is getting something to work in the first place. So why not start with something that works? We have this concept in technology in general. I actually heard someone say it in relation to a kind of DevOps thing. I was talking about Kubernetes with someone and I said, I really like Helm. And they said, Helm is like training wheels for people who don't know how to use Kubernetes. And my jaw kind of dropped at the idea that simple is considered a bad thing because it doesn't prove how smart you are. It doesn't prove that you know how to do something that someone else can't do. And we do hiring the same way. We want a bunch of other people who are so much smarter than everyone else and prove. I want the person who does it fast, who does it smart, who's efficient, and who makes it's simple for everyone else to look at and understand later. Like, when did that become a negative thing in our industry? And how do we change it? So true. The myth of the 10x engineer. Yep. I'm a 10x engineer because it takes me 10 times longer to do things. <laughs> That's not true. Hey, it can be true. And <laughs> your way to make it more efficient is, as we said in the beginning, to ask questions instead of Googling them, right? No, I, I think we're told time and time again, within our industry, outside of our industry, unless I'm in Washington, D.C., in which case I introduce myself as a software engineer and no one cares because I don't work in politics. But outside of this area, I introduce myself as a software engineer and people kind of are impressed and they're like, oh, wow, you must be so smart. And I think that's, you know, it feels nice to hear. It feels nice for all of us to be these kind of genius gods to other people not in our industry. But I think it's detrimental because it reinforces things that people in this industry tell themselves 
about the fact that not everyone can be them. In fact, we see it a lot with people coming out of boot camps or self-taught or career switchers. Well, of course they can't do this because they don't have these computer science fundamentals, which are critical at every turn. Okay, I have a master's degree in computer science. First of all, one of my bosses didn't even know I had it until two years after I started working for him, which shows how much we read resumes in this industry. But it also means that I have that background. I have a background in mathematics. I don't work in big data. I don't work in data science. Sometimes when we're talking about the graph nature of NoSQL databases, my background comes in handy. I've been on some hardware projects where my math background has come in handy. But I do a lot of web development. And I would say that the communication abilities I have from being a political science major end up being more relevant in a lot of cases than the idea that I know what's happening deep down at some machine learning level or register keys or whatever it is. I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors by continuing to perpetuate the myth that if you don't understand what's happening six layers below, you can't do something efficiently at the top level. Yeah, that's something I always do when when people give me that exact response. Oh, you must be so smart. You're writing software. And I say, oh, or they, you must be so good at math or whatever. And I say, I don't even have to count to 10. The computer does that for me. At my level, like web development, I do no mathematics. Like there are other areas of tech where, like you said, you it does come in handy. But for me, never needed it. And so I try and communicate that when people give me that information. No, no, seriously, like anyone, you can just sit down and do it. It's not that hard because I, I want to bring more people into the industry. But um, yeah, there is that pervasive perception that it's about smartness. And there's still plenty of people in the industry who care really only about how smart they look when they're doing their thing. I don't think anyone can code, but I don't think it's about smartness. I think it's about patience. I know people who like don't have the patience for it and just like they hate it because they don't have the patience for it. And like, I think that recognizing that you're a person that's like, I'm miserable doing this because I don't have the patience to debug it is like a really, I had friends in computer, like in school who like dropped out of computer science because of that. And at first I was like, but like you could do it, like you're smart. And then I was like, oh yeah, well, like you could do it, but like, why would you if like you hate it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so funny to me. I think my father would say multiple times over that I'm one of the least patient people he's ever met. And yet I enjoy it because once I get into the debugging nature of it, I really love puzzles. And so to me, it feels like I'm constantly making forward progress and I'm constantly getting closer and closer into, to the solution. But I think for other people who don't see those kind of intermediate benchmarks, absolutely. And you're right, not everyone can code. But I think where we go wrong is deciding what we think makes the building blocks of That's a strong true. coder. I had a friend in college who dropped out of um, the computer science program in freshman year because he like was, he spent like eight hours debugging. Imagine like the first computer science class you've ever taken. And he spent like eight hours debugging and it was like, this was in Java and it was like a semicolon. And he was like so mad he was so mad that like he spent all this time looking for a semicolon. And I was like, I'm sorry that you're mad, but I think that that's just something that happens sometimes. And he like literally dropped out of the program over this one incident. And then he went into languages, like real languages. And now he speaks like eight languages. And it was so interesting to me because it had never dawned on me that like 
the part of his brain that wanted to learn code really just wanted to learn like regular languages and not have to do the, like the debugging part. And it was like super cool to watch him like fail at one thing and then like wildly succeed at something kind of similar. It's so interesting that we tend to think of computer science as kind of the same part of your brain that does hard sciences. And that may be true, but I think it's similar to the part of your brain that does languages, music and math, which has a lot of creativity involved in it, which is, I mean, especially for front end engineers, which I think we have such a dearth of right now. We need people who have been in the shoes of the customers and the people who use these systems. We need people with arts and kind of visual capabilities. And we need people who can communicate really, really well because UX is hard and people who have empathy because of accessibility and kind of all of these skill sets. And yet we're still looking for what used to be purely backend engineers or looking at their requirements and skill sets to hire front-end engineers. And I'm not trying to kind of make a divide between front-end and back-end. I consider myself to do both. But we're taking requirements and applying them in places that they don't belong. And I think that's true kind of throughout the industry, because at this point, there's so many different verticals of technology. Like, it's truly insane. I think jumping into, like, non-computer science skills that are good on software teams these days is a great topic. I know it's something you interested you mentioned being interested in talking about. But first, we need to have a message from our sponsor. Greater Than Code is sponsored by Crickstart, which is organic a company that makes organic snacks with cricket powder. And they don't even taste like crickets. I promise. In fact, they have protein bars. They're really great. Um, the cricket powder is made from organically farmed free-range crickets. They have other plant-based stuff in there, too. Seed butters, hemp, chocolate dates. Everything is organic. It tastes really great. It doesn't have that chalky taste that you often get in protein bars. I really – I've actually have had straight crickets before. So when I say that it doesn't taste like crickets, I'm not even lying. Like, I know about this. They also make crackers. They're pretty great. You can have them with snacks. Um, they sent us all like all this cricket stuff in the mail, and I was like very excited to get this like box from our sponsor and like eat all this cricket food. They have shakes and crackers. The crackers are super tasty. I really like the olive flavor, and they're like very nutritional. Crickets are really high in protein. That's what like bugs the wave of the future and all that. So they're very nutritional, and they'll give you like a burst of energy. The protein bars are my favorite, so that's like what I'm kind of thinking about, but. And it says there's over 40 crickets in every Crick Start bar and over 100 in every bag of crackers. So if you want to eat 100 crickets, <laughs> I would recommend this rather than just eating 100 crickets. Also, if you would like to try them, you can visit crickstart.com. And if you use the promotional code, greater than code, all one word, you'll get 20% off your order. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about our industry is that we can bring people in from lots of different other industries and, and skill sets and use that way of thinking to influence how we work. I know some, some people have had some really interesting talks on that. Uh, I know Betsy Habel had a talk about how set design can inform software architecture. Uh, that was on the tech done right episode. I'll post a link to that. There was uh, what we can learn about diversity from liberal arts, which was a talk by Liz Serta a couple of years ago. Go liberal arts. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of the issues that we've been discussing here today 
the strengths that you get from liberal arts education or from from working in other fields are strengths that make you better developers because you're fill up as you said communication and empathy and ab- like the thinking through impacts of your changes and and things like that 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 you really get good at maybe doing work in other fields and then when you come to technology you can realize how that can be really effective in this context. So are there uh, examples or other thoughts you have on what sorts of skills we can bring in? Yeah, definitely. One of the ones that I never really thought about until I came across someone who had this skill set was theater. So some people may know Chloe Condon. Um, She's a dev relations person. And it kind of ties into the whole time suck thing that I said earlier which is, I mean, I did musical theater when I was a kid for many, many years, but the idea of like kind of unabashedly being okay with taking up space sometimes and and not being afraid of feeling like you're grabbing attention that you don't necessarily deserve and all of that, like theater kids are great at that. And they often have a kind of deep level of empathy, but also observational intelligence of kind of people's emotional range in communication that I think can be really helpful. I joke a lot of the times that theater people have kind of faked so many emotions that they can always tell when the person they're talking to is feeling one of them and kind of like adjust accordingly. And I don't know that that's true for everyone, but I think that's a skill we could all benefit from. But the tech industry in general doesn't have a whole lot of those people. So that would be one. I'm not sure. Do do others come to mind for you all? We mentioned empathy earlier, and I think about that a lot as like a skill that's just so important in every sense of everything you do, like talking to your coworkers and collaborating on projects. And if you have to talk to clients, like absolutely. But even if you don't like having the ability to put yourself into like the shoes of your user and be like, is the thing that we're making useful to this person because like it's very easy to get sucked into and i think in some companies like this it's fine because that's true like is your product for other tech people like you like if you work at like slack then maybe your users are similar to you and you have an understanding of you know what their needs are because like you use slack and you have opinions on it but if your users like i work in agriculture and my users are farmers and it like took me a really long time to be like I don't know what it's like to be a farmer, but I have to figure out to some extent what it's like to be a farmer. And I think that there's a real skill, not just of being able to do that, like put your mind to like, I'm going to try and think like this user or this demographic or whatever. But there's some people I think it wouldn't necessarily even occur to them to do that. And that's where like empathy is just such like a quintessential thing that like I've heard it get talked about more lately, but I think that, I don't know. I think it's just like maybe the most important thing at all. And I think that it's undervalued. That actually came up in a talk that I did actually one of my first talks ever, which was we often kind of decide for ourselves whether a project was successful or not. And our success criteria are so often based on how sleek is the code? How efficient is it? Did it do its job? And especially with the number of legacy systems that are getting replaced these days, our success criteria should always be, did it make life easier or at least status quo 
for the users because they had to get their system replaced. It wasn't, you know, it was on life support, basically. But the idea that you're making all of these changes within that and saying, oh, this will be better for them. Well, if they don't understand it and they can't use it, it's not. And empathy goes straight to that and being able to kind of put yourself in your customer's shoes. But to kind of go back to the other skill sets that are important, I was thinking about, you know, like the musical theater example, which is kind of funny. We talk so often about how coders need to be good at learning constantly. And I think that's true. We need teachers and we need a lot of them because as the amount of knowledge that you need to learn to be able to do current, it's like the science problem, right? Like there's always more science getting discovered. So what it takes to learn up to modern day science is always, always growing. So that's true in computer science as well. Though in some ways, I think some of my older coworkers always joke with me that like, I need to know so much less than they need to know because I get to work in like little boxes of services and things that didn't used to exist. But the idea that we need teachers who can help mentor and grow the industry away from completely self-learners and completely people who are drawn to this themselves. Because once you're bitten by the bug and once you understand a certain level of what you need to work on, you can grow yourself. But there's different ways to get started. And I think recognizing that we need learners, but we also need teachers is kind of important. I have a question about learning. Do you think learning all the time is a skill or a mindset or both? I think learning all the time is the ability to not feel dumb, even when you feel dumb, (laughs) which it's actually funny. So my company that we mentioned before, 10 Mile Square, we work on so many different projects that I joke all the time that I constantly feel dumb because... I come from a software engineering background before coming to my position right now. And in the past year, I've had to do hardware. I've done DevOps. I've done software and completely different technologies. I've done communication and assessments. Like I've done just this wide breadth of stuff that's totally, totally out of my comfort zone. And I got really frustrated at one point this year. And I kind of said, you know, I'm sick of always feeling like I don't know anything. I'm sick of never getting to rely on kind of this backbone of knowledge that I have. Because frankly, like when you know software engineering, switching between languages and frameworks is hard, but you're at least working off the same skeleton, so to speak. But like switching to DevOps or hardware, just completely, completely different worlds. And the ability to see things as temporary states is really important. So Constantly learning means knowing that every bit of frustration is just on the path to get you to the next like Yahoo moment. I did it. I'm a genius. And that everything's a temporary state. And we always were somewhat negative in that way as people. I think especially people who work in tech, it's this won't work. This won't work. This won't work. And then this fleeting second of like, yay, this works. But recognizing that all of those moments were temporary states and they will eventually come to an end and then you'll be in the new one and like recognizing your positive temporary states and kind of keeping those in the back of your mind as that's what's coming up for me. Like it will always be there at the end of the road. It just may take a while. Yeah, I I gave a talk on this uh, earlier in the year called Everything is Broken and It's Okay, where I talked about this, this very thing where it's like as soon as you get that, yes, it works. 
you immediately jump on to the next thing that doesn't work. Like you, you don't have a lot of time in that, oh my God, everything's working moment to feel that joy before you jump on to the other thing that doesn't work and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so one of the things I talked about was, you know, paying more attention to those moments when you get them and, you know, writing them down or, and reviewing them at the end of the day and doing things that can increase their, profile in your consciousness so that when you think about like your overall week, you can look back and you could say, oh, I had five of these really great moments and I can ignore the rest of it because that's just the crap you go through to get to those moments. Rather than when you look back on your week and you say, well, 90% of my time was just spent staring at that debugger wondering what the hell was going on. It's very demoralizing and very easy to get yourself burnt out from that. I feel like I get particularly demoralized with bigger projects because like, there's so much. And when you first start a big, at least I won't say you, when I first start a bigger project, at least I very often feel like overwhelmed. Like, how is this going to work? We have to figure out all this architecture. Like, how can we possibly do this? It seems impossible. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how it should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I feel like the first like third of every project I work on is like living in this like perpetual anxiety state about that. And what I try to remember is like, remember last time you did a project and you felt like you were in this perpetual anxiety state and then it was impossible. And then like, have I ever had a project where I'm like, well, I actually couldn't figure it out. So I quit and moved to the woods. Like I said, I was going to do like, no, that's never actually happened to me. Uh, so it probably won't happen to me this time realistically even though I feel that way about it right now and like I actually really have to remind myself of that a lot because I like get very overwhelmed when I'm in that anxiety state I think that kind of speaks to the problem that we're bad at remembering all that we've learned and all that we've done before we remember the bad stuff to a certain extent I've talked to a lot of people about the concept of a developer journal that I keep. And I think it's really helpful where I, I keep notes about kind of this site helped me solve this problem or this pseudocode or this was the resource that I needed. It's very efficient because the next time I come across it, which always happens, I don't have to say, oh, I solved that that one time before. Like, where was that? And I think we could do the same for kind of emotional well-being, so to speak. The idea that like you can write down, hey, this was a really big victory for me. And I remember learning this and doing this. And the next time you come across that piece of technology, you already learned it. And you should recognize that even though you have to learn XYZ other thing or do XYZ other thing for this new project, feel positive about all of the kind of blood, sweat and tears you've already put in, so to speak. And don't discount that as being irrelevant or easy because it's easy now, but it wasn't then. Yeah, I find remembering how difficult things were at the beginning to be really, really helpful because then you can look back and say, oh, you know, it used to be really hard for me to figure out how all these Rails models are going to be related to one another. But now I just sort of do it in my sleep. Then you can be like, oh, yeah, I got good at that over the last 10 years. <laughs> well, how about that? My constant example is when I was in college, I had a really hard time doing the algorithm for Huffman encoding. And I'm still like afraid to go back to it. I'm sure I could do it now. But just in my head, I'm like evil, evil algorithm that I don't want to touch that was really confusing when I was first using Python. And I didn't understand the concept of libraries in Python and all that. I think the baggage about stuff that we've worked on in the past is super real. Like at my previous company, I did a project with like Bluetooth printing that was just like a disaster. And I mean, I learned a lot from it, 
But my, my new company, they were like, oh, we're going to do this printing project. Like, didn't you work on something like this at your old company? Like, you could do it because you've already done something like this and you like kind of know about it, which is like a very reasonable way for them to feel. But I was like, I absolutely cannot be the person who does this because like I'm feeling very negative about it. Like I'm already feeling very negative about this project that you just mentioned to me because you mentioned to me in this context of like this baggage I already have. And like, it's hard because on the one hand, part of me wants to be like, well, that's silly and you don't have to feel that way about it because you did learn stuff and you do have like background in this. But then another part of me is like, that kind of baggage is really real. And if this is going to cause me to like feel negative about myself and my job and my life in the same way that it did before and someone else can do it, like maybe someone else should just do it because like when you're talking about efficiency, like what's more efficient, having someone who has a little bit more experience in this or having someone who's like fresh and not, you know, angry about it. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to be a big, big impact. Just thinking about the baggage that I have has made me realize how true that statement is. Like there's about 10 different things someone could come and ask me to work on right now. And I'd be a deer in the headlights of like, please, no, (laughs) been there. Don't make me cry, please. I was really trying to push through it at first. And then I was like, no, I shouldn't have to push through this. Like there's other people on my team for a reason. Uh, so at the end of every show, we um, go into what we call reflections, which is just uh, the takeaways or interesting ideas that each of us have encountered as we've gone through this conversation. I would say I love talking to people who have seen a lot of other people speak. So John mentioned a number of different talks and kind of linked to them in this this chat that we have that I want to go back and watch that kind of uh, relate to things that I have experienced or that I'm really interested in. And I love the idea that within a community, even if it feels like at a meta level, we have all of these views that I don't necessarily agree with. When you kind of get down and talk to people, there's all of these different people working on similar problems and kind of trying to make our industry not just accessible, but livable and enjoyable and exciting. I I like the direction that kind of all these conversations are going in. And I like talking to people who feel that way. I'm not sure how much of a takeaway that was. Really, I just want to watch all the talks you link to. (laughs) Well, that's a call to action. Yeah. There you go. I want to watch all the talks of all time. I think our conversation about hiring at the beginning of of the show was really interesting and insightful and like helpful for me. As I mentioned, I'm a hiring manager now and I've been making a lot of decisions about how we interview and what kind of questions we ask and what kind of stuff we put value on. And I have been thoughtful about it. I feel pretty good about my process, but I definitely always want to be improving it. And I think that what you said about false positives and false negatives was really helpful for me to reflect on, like, even if it's not a change in the interview process, um, like a change in how we think about evaluating people that we've already talked to. And like, when you are on the fence about somebody, how you approach that fence as a team, I guess, um, is something that I kind of want to rethink. I also love the idea of having like a code sample to have them like, fix or add or do some like work with in some way, I think is a great idea that I had never thought about. And I, I want to like consider if that's something that I might implement in my process. Like I think being one of the people that gets 
to have some say in how you do the interview process at your company is kind of like powerful. Like it's definitely powerful because I'm affecting like, you know, the people that I interview and stuff about their career and livelihood, which is a lot of responsibility that I do think about. But I also think that if you want hiring practices to be different than like doing them different and like every single person that touches my hiring process is going to see what it's like and have an opinion about it. And maybe even if we don't end up hiring them or they end up not wanting to work with us, like they'll take that feeling about the process I set up with them and take it to other companies and judge other processes by my standard in a way or like if they liked it maybe they'll take it to their company and say maybe we should do this in our hiring it could kick off some sort of chain reaction and like anyone who has any say into that like can participate in that chain reaction in a way that's cool so it's important to me for my reflection i want to go back to what you mentioned laurie at the beginning of the episode where your superpower is being a time suck and it relates I think to something that came up later in the discussion too, where you mentioned the ability to take up space and demand the attention that you need. And I think that's a really powerful thing that I think a lot of people can learn, but I think particularly junior developers can learn. And and for me, who's someone who mentors a lot of junior developers, finding ways to communicate to them that they deserve to be here, that they deserve to take up space, that they can, they can own their need to have an answer from me or from whoever they're working with is a really powerful thing that I would love it if more of them can do. And I want to figure out how to make that happen. Everyone's going to have my superpower now. Love it. <laughs> I'm glad that you want to share it and you're not possessive of it. <laughs> nah, it's cool. I think we can all be time sucks and there will be no time left and I'll just nap all the time. Sweet. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> Well, Lori, this was a really great conversation. We really appreciate you coming on the show. We had a great time and a great episode with you. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you'd like to continue having conversations like this, you can support us on Patreon. I believe it's patreon.com slash greater than code. And even if you only pledge a dollar a month, you can join our Slack community. It's really great there. And we're always kind of having chats like this all the time. 